I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Jack. It is Sunday, February 19th, 2023. I'm your host, Andy McCabe. And I'm Allison Gill. Hi, Andy. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, but holy majoli, we had a heck of a week uh, of news. We we have a bounty of news. Yeah, huge show for you today. Uh, We have subpoenas. Everybody gets a subpoena and testimony now of former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, Trump's attorneys, Boris Epstein and Evan Corcoran, who, by the way, just lawyered up, proving yet again that MAGA stands for making attorneys get attorneys. We have um, Christina (laughs) Bob, uh, the two private investigators that searched Trump's properties for more classified documents and found uh, something. Uh, And we learned that Mark Meadows has been subpoenaed, along with some additional Arizona State Republican lawmakers. That is right. And a really big story this week. We learned that Trump paid an outside research firm to find proof of election fraud. And that firm then briefed Trump and Meadows that, lo and behold, no widespread fraud was found. And we learned that former Vice President Mike Pence intends to fight the special counsel subpoena using the speech and debate clause of uh, that typically protects Congress. But before we get to all that, let's answer a listener question. All right, AG, this week's question comes from Dr. Terrell. I'm not going to use his last name because I don't want him to get hounded for the rest of his life. Uh, But Dr. Terrell writes in, I have a lot of respect for the way the court is constructed, but I have to ask, is there ever a point where filing frivolous appeals and lawsuits amounts to obstruction? In reflecting on Pence's decision to falsely claim that he was a part of the legislature to get out of testifying and other knowingly false yet novel legal claims that end up taking years to be adjudicated, is there a point at which these acts of tying up the investigations and appeals amounts to obstruction? While I am a psychiatrist, it doesn't take a shrink to see that these arguments are made in bad faith or to obstruct and delay. Okay, Doc Good question here, Um, and I think it's timely in light of the reference you make to the Mike Pence situation, which we're going to talk about in more detail later. But let's start out by reminding everyone a little bit about obstruction of justice, which you can find at 18 U.S.C. 1503, and that statute defines obstruction as an act that Uh, An obstruction of justice is an act that corruptly or by threats of force or by any threatening letter or communication influences, obstructs, or impedes, or endeavors to influence, obstruct, or impede the due administration of justice. Now, note here that the intent required is not just that the obstructor had knowledge uh, and the intent to obstruct, but also had knowledge of the existence of the proceeding and knowledge that the obstructive activity would actually have an effect on that proceeding. So I guess the short answer to your question, now that we've read the statute, my my opinion here, Doc, is probably not. And the reason is that attorneys and litigants are given wide latitude to make arguments to the court, um, and particularly so when you are the defendant. So in this case, Mike Pence didn't 
you know, just initiate this legal action that he is now trying to obstruct. He's essentially making arguments to try to quash a subpoena that he thinks has been unfairly served upon him. Now, I'll agree with you that Pence's position raises some, let's call it novel, legal arguments. um, And those arguments could very well find their way to the Supreme Court, which would really slow things down a lot. Uh, But actually going after a litigant in a criminal context and trying to hold them criminally liable for obstruction of justice is highly unlikely. I don't think it's even possible in this case. And it's pretty unlikely in any case. Right. And I would say, you know, with the with the element of obstruction of justice of nexus to an official proceeding, court proceedings don't really qualify as that. The remedy uh, for, you know, frivolously tying up the courts is sanctions and contempt right. and, and things that are the inherent powers of the judiciary, not the executive. And I, I think that might be part of the whole separation of powers issue, which is oddly enough, Pence's argument here. Um, and also, you know, we can't take that right away from potential defendants uh, simply because there are those who would abuse it uh, to delay. Um, that's a very fine line. I've walked it in the government. You've walked it in the government. That's right. We talk about, um, you know, the grievance system, for example, to file a grievance or an EEO complaint. Um, we, we have to listen to and, and read all of those. That system is abused from time to time. But if we constrict it or curtail it, then we're taking those rights away from people who need those remedies. That's exactly uh, right. And yeah, so we always kind of have to put the, shoe, put the shoe on the other foot. That's right. You know, you run the risk of denying people their day in court or denying people the opportunity to mount their most vigorous defense um, or argument. So the way that civil courts typically handle this, as you said, AG, is by holding people in contempt or levying fines or ordering one side to pay the legal fees or the court costs of the other side. Best example of this recently was uh, the recent order that we had in Florida, where none other than Donald Trump and his attorney Alina Haba have been ordered to pay nine hundred and thirty-eight thousand dollars in the Trump v. Clinton civil case. Full disclosure: I was in that case as well. Uh, but again, very different from the Pence situation because in the Trump situation, he was the plaintiff. He started the case, and infamously, Judge Middlebrooks. Uh, stated really early in the order, and I quote here, here we are confronted with a lawsuit that should never have been filed, which was completely frivolous, both factually and legally, and which was brought in bad faith for an improper purpose. So that's really the grand slam of uh, of examples of where a judge in a civil case is going to sanction uh, attorneys for doing exactly what the doctor has uh, questioned here and that is, you know, bringing bad faith arguments and, and in this case, raising an entire lawsuit against a whole bunch of people uh, for no good reason. So that's more what you can expect to see, although I don't believe that the Mike Pence fighting the subpoena situation is, is likely to end up in that kind of remedy either. And we'll get into that a little bit later in the show. Yeah, I don't think that it would be a sanctionable uh, lawsuit either because it is a novel question. Is the vice president who's presiding over the January 6th count of the electoral vote, considered part of the legislature, and is that considered a legislative act? I mean, none of the, we've never been in this situation before. Right. And so that separation of powers may be something 
that this court, this Supreme Court might want to hear. And we'll just have to see how that goes. Now, I do want to, you know, give a little ray of hope here. There are a lot of frivolous lawsuit filers who have met uh, some of these remedies uh, for filing their frivolous and, um, you know, absolutely BS lawsuits. You know, you you mentioned um, Donald Trump and his lawsuit against Hillary Clinton. They withdrew a couple of other lawsuits that they had sued New York Attorney General Tish James. So those have been pulled off the docket because they were going to be sanctioned for those. Carrie Lake in Arizona has faced right. Rule 11 sanctions. We have the um, the Kraken Strike Force in Michigan all mm-hmm. faced uh, sanctions as a group for their frivolous lawsuit for election fraud claims that were just totally unproven. Uh, Rudy has had his law license suspended. Uh, several others from the Kraken Strike Force have been uh, referred for disbarment. Eastman, John Eastman, is yep. now going through a disbarment procedure. Um, and so we are seeing these remedies come through. We are seeing, quote unquote, justice when it comes to filing frivolous lawsuits, uh, which is good because th- those are pretty rare. Uh, and we're seeing it happen quite a bit to a lot of these folks who would otherwise use the court kind of in a similar way, Andrew, to the the way Prigozhin tried to use the court, uh, the United States courts, when he filed a lawsuit on behalf of his uh, catering company or something, mm-hmm. that basically the company that put together the troll farm in, in Russia. Uh, and he was trying to get at Mueller documents through discovery. And the judge quickly figured that out and shut it down uh, and, and said, we're not doing this. This is ridiculous. It's a, a waste of the court's time. Uh, and so, you know, we we do see, um, I think, as we should be seeing, the court taking proper action. Uh, and, you you know, you mentioned Alina Haba. I just want to say something real quick about Haba, because we're going to get into after we take a, a break here and we get back into the show our next segment, we're going to talk about subpoenas. It's subpoena and time. <laughs> we're waiting <laughs> uh, to, to see and know if Alina Haba has been uh, subpoenaed by the grand jury. And I find her case specifically interesting because, you know, Corcoran makes sense to me. Christina Bob makes sense to me because they signed that attestation that there were no more classified documents after the subpoena, which led to the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago. But Alina Haba also signed a declaration, but she signed a declaration in the New York Attorney General Tish James's $250 million civil suit against Donald Trump, Donald Trump's companies, his adult children. And she testified or or signed a sworn affidavit or or a sworn statement or attestation letter, letter that she did a diligent search of all Trump properties looking for accounting paperwork, right? Because that's what they were investigating at the New York Attorney General's office. And I'll I'll be goddamn, pardon my French, if she didn't run into classified documents when doing that search, or that she didn't actually do that diligent search. So I'm interested to see where that heads. Yeah, you know, that is one of the most fascinating things that I think we picked up this week uh, about Alina Haba. And it's another one of these things that we're just going to have to put on the shelf and see how this plays out over the next couple of weeks. And, and then, you know, finally, to close this question out, I think it's also worth mentioning that although criminal sanctions, criminal proceedings are not typically seen um, as the remedy to seek against litigants who are abusing the system. In this case, we just might, and I'll give you the context. 
So we already know that the special counsel team is looking at Trump and Eastman, for example, uh, in terms of the um, the fraudulent elector scheme, the scheme to delay, you know, to put, install a puppet regime in DOJ uh, to essentially delay the certification uh, of the of the election. And they might actually experience criminal penalties in the form of fraud against the government for their abuse of using lawsuits to further some of those schemes. So it's not exactly, it's a bit of a bank shot. It's not exactly the very clean question that uh, the good doctor asked us uh, this week, but uh, still kind of an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. And and Pence's lawsuit wouldn't fall under that category. So that's right. Yep. All right. Well, everybody, uh, first of all, thank you for that question. Excellent question. If you have any questions that you want to ask me and Andy, you can send them in to us by emailing hello at MullerSheWrote.com and putting Jack in the subject line. And uh, Andy will pick a question uh, every week and answer it, maybe two. So send them in and we appreciate you. Stick around, everybody. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about some subpoenas. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of the Talking Feds podcast, a weekly roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Most news commentary is delivered in 90-second sound bites that just scratch the surface of a new development, not Talking Feds. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Feds favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. We dig deep, but keep it fun. Plus sidebars detailing important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities, such as Robert De Niro explaining whether the president can pardon himself, and Carol King explaining whether members of Congress can be disqualified from higher office, and music by Philip Glass. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's subpoena time. It's subpoena time. All right, and uh, hey, Andy, there will uh, there's a lot of subpoenas and testimony happening this week. I could barely keep track of them. I was even emailing you, changing the script of this show up to the last minute on Friday because more went out. As a matter of fact, the more that went out, uh, went to some Arizona GOP lawmakers. Now, you'll remember back in November, uh, that rhymes, that's fun, um, Jack Smith sent out a whole gang of of subpoenas to like 100 fraudulent electors, uh, potential fraudulent electors, wanting their communications with 18 different Trump campaign officials and lawyers. That's right. And they, you know, were looking for information about, you know, any communications that they had, and and these were uh, you know electors and election officials in all seven states. Well, there is this is basically the same subpoena. Daily Beast has seen a copy of it. It went out after that, and it went to some additional Arizona lawmakers to get information from them about communications with the same group of eighteen campaign officials and lawyers. And and this again uh, goes toward the aggressiveness with which Jack Smith is investigating the fraudulent elector scheme. That is absolutely right. It has been raining subpoenas all week. 
uh, first on Arizona. And then, of course, we, as our intrepid uh, reporters and their, I don't know, surveillance operatives at the court are picking off, seeing all sorts of particularly Trump lawyers rolling into the grand jury and uh, showing the evidence, I guess, the physical evidence of having been served with a subpoena. The top am- among this group for me this week, AG, is uh, Evan Corcoran. So Evan Corcoran, I'm <laughs> sure our listeners know, is one of the astute legal minds that has been hired by Donald Trump to help guide him through the uh, trouble he's created with himself, with the with his retention of classified documents, presidential records, maybe national defense information down at Mar-a-Lago. Notably, Corcoran was the one who wrote the affidavit asserting that they had conducted a diligence search and found all remaining uh, classified documents. And then, of course, got a different attorney to sign that for him. Having, Having written it, probably had some idea of how wildly inaccurate it was. He had someone else sign it. Uh, Christina Bob, and then of course provided that to the Justice Department. You know, shortly before the search warrant was executed, and they found several hundred more documents. Uh, so we know now that uh, Mr. Corcoran has been in front of the grand jury in D.C. Uh, as a result of a special counsel subpoena, and apparently during that uh, appearance, he, as you would expect, invoked executive privilege or maybe attorney-client privilege to protect his conversations with uh, his client, Donald Trump. So this week we learned that the special counsel has now moved to invoke the fraud crime exception uh, to essentially pierce that attorney-client privilege. So if approved by Judge Beryl Howell, that will enable the uh, special counsel to bring Mr. Corcoran back in front of the grand jury again and essentially force him to answer those questions that he claimed were privileged. So just a, a, an act you don't see very often. See, an attorney dragged in front of a grand jury is pretty rare. I know it doesn't seem like it this week, but nevertheless. And then to go after that attorney with through the crime fraud exception is is really, really rare. Yeah. And if 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 he's compelled, if, if Judge Beryl Howell finds that the, the crime fraud exception applies and there is no attorney client privilege and he is compelled to testify and he refuses, he can be held in contempt. It's not just like, a, oh, well, I'll just go home. Uh, he can be held in contempt for for not giving that information over. Um, yeah, and and significantly, just filing the motion and invoking this action puts the special counsel team in the position of essentially representing to the judge in their uh, their motion papers, explaining why they believe that the conversations that Corcoran and Trump were engaged in were actually in furtherance of a crime. So it's hard to imagine that you would file such a motion to get the attorney's testimony in an investigation where you did not believe the subject of the investigation, i.e. Donald Trump, actually engaged in a crime. So it's a little bit of a foreshadowing. It's not an indictment. Nobody's been indicted yet. But this certainly leans in the in the direction of charges coming at some point. Yeah. And I, by the way, your It's Raining subpoenas, maybe that should be our, our music introduction for for the subpoena time. Let's let's try it. It's subpoenas. Hallelujah, it's subpoenas. I like that one, Andrew. Well done. I, I'm. I, you can't go wrong with it's rain and whatever. So yeah. you know, I, I'm. I'm digging it. Yeah. Now I want to talk a little bit just for a second before we move on to Christina Bob, who you mentioned, because she's also been subpoenaed and has testified. 
Uh, but the crime in the crime fraud exception, uh, everybody's like, oh, there could have been a crime committed here. Oh, my God, there's a crime committed here. And I hate to be a party pooper, but we kind of already knew this when obstruction was on the search warrant affidavit for Mar-a-Lago. That is the crime likely. I'm, it could be a whole different crime. Right. I don't know. But that is likely the crime here that you would use the crime fraud exception to pierce attorney client privilege with was that. They said that they had handed over all the documents pursuant to a subpoena that was issued on May 11th. They did not. It took about three weeks and they decided the De Department of Justice said we got to go for the search warrant. Obstruction of justice, which is 18 U.S. Code 1519, was on that affidavit as one of the three crimes. And that's the crime. So so, yes, while the DOJ say wanting to use crime fraud exception to get at his testimony is is news. It's not really new news if in fact it is the same crime that was used utilized to get a search warrant to search mar-a-lago that's a pretty big indication of a crime uh you can't just get a search warrant uh especially of the home of a former president i know that you know the standard is pretty you know uh probable cause but with the, the home of a former president or a lawyer or something to that effect it's gonna be like you you you're going to want to be really sure that there's fruits of a crime. And that's why I think it took it took three weeks to decide, because I think Merrick Garland knew if he found fruits of a crime, he could be faced with charging a former president of the United States. And so that took that took a minute. No question. And uh, no question. Garland was was personally involved in those decisions. These, as you said, A.G., these these decisions don't get made like run of the mill. Hey, we we sent a source into an apartment. He bought some drugs. Therefore, we have probable cause to believe there's drugs in there. Let's get a search warrant. Um, this is uh, at the very high, you know, the, the kind of top of the food chain when it comes to challenging legal issues. Let's also remember that the evidence they used to prove uh, to convince the judge that there was probable cause to believe there was evidence of a crime in there was not just the affidavit that we've talked about that uh, Corcoran wrote and Christina Bob signed, but it was also the, apparently, whatever they saw on the videotapes, the surveillance tapes inside Mar-a-Lago that showed the room where the items, the documents were allegedly being stored securely that no one had access to, and lo and behold... Uh, as as has been reported, the tapes show things coming in and out of the out of the room. So they had very solid evidence that there was evidence of a crime. That crime being obstruction uh, and other crimes, retention, retention of national defense uh, information. Um, you know that evidence was on that premises. So hence your search warrant. Yeah, but like you said, that doesn't preclude the fact that there will, will be an indictment. I mean, look at Rudy Giuliani, as you know, for example, when the Southern District of New York took a, decided that they were going to search Rudy Giuliani's home and office. He, this, this is a attorney for the for, for the vice pre, or for the president at the time, uh, at the time, and and they did. They went in and they you know had to have probable cause of a crime, maybe a little bit higher standard in their own heads, at least because they're going into that Rudy Giuliani office. But there's still what there were no charges that came out of that um, search that was, in, I believe, April 2018. So it doesn't guarantee anything. But I mean, you know, the obstruction case is a little bit, um, I don't know, seems a little clearer to me. But I just want to put that out there that, that doesn't guarantee anything. Now, let's talk about Bob, right? She's the one who signed it. She actually told Corcoran, I'm not signing this. Unless you put to the best of my knowledge in there. She made some edits to that affidavit, that attestation letter, to make it a little more smushy 
uh, uh, a little more ambiguous, uh, to use a better term, uh, because she didn't feel comfortable signing it. She lawyered up last year. I don't know why Corcoran took until now to get a lawyer, but he hired one finally um, named Levy, I believe his name is, or Levi. Uh, I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not too familiar with, with that particular person. But he finally lawyered up, but she's been lawyered up for a while uh, and and has already spoken to the Department of Justice a couple times. And we found out she was subpoenaed and has spoken to the federal grand jury. And then um, let's talk about uh, National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. We knew last week you and I reported he had been subpoenaed. Well, he was spotted outside Prettyman, which is where the grand juries meet. So he presumably was testifying before the Jack Smith grand jury um, this week. So that happened. Yeah, and O'Brien, as we said, could be a very significant uh, witness, maybe not so much on the documents case, although you never know. I mean, technically, the it's the national security staff uh, in the White House that's responsible for the um, securing of all classified materials, so maybe he knows something there. Um, but particularly where I think O'Brien helps or could help the special counsel is on his interactions with and observations of the president in the weeks leading up to January 6th. He is a person who could provide information about the president's intent, things he may have said, um, folks that he met with, um, you know, who knows, all kinds of ways that that O'Brien could have come across direct evidence of the president's intent with respect to the plan for January 6th. Yes, and uh, some some more subpoenas. We we aren't done. We still have more subpoenas. Raining subpoenas. Andy, we were right. Remember the two private investigators. Uh, you know when Judge Beryl Howe was like, "You need to search your own properties," and he went and hired a quote unquote independent private investigation firm. Two of them went and searched the rest of his properties, and the J- Jack Smith actually filed a motion f- to force them to force Trump's team to hand the names of those people over. He did yes, you and he I did. posited that was because. They wanted to bring him into the grand jury. And we were right, my friend. They have been brought to the grand jury. They have testified before the grand jury. I'm interested. Those are all under seal. All, all grand jury proceedings are. Right. And um, also, Boris Epstein. Um, you remember him from the Mueller investigation. He's How been around. How could we forget for, Boris? He's been around for a long time. And the interesting part here, there's a little buried lead in the New York Times story by Haberman that came out this week. Jack Smith is asking people. If Boris Epstein tried to influence anyone's testimony, I'm going to guess Christina Bob and, you know, uh, you know, other lawyers on the on the Trump team. Uh, but it could it. But I'm, that's just a guess. We, we aren't sure. But talk just for a minute about how serious a crime it is to suborn perjury, intimidate a witness, uh, influence testimony. I mean, that's a big deal. It really is. There's obvious, uh, significant, serious criminal penalties that come along with it. It's also the kind of thing that could lead very quickly to the revocation of your law license. So this could be yet another Trump attorney or Trump-associated attorney who ends up with no no longer being an attorney when this whole thing is played out. Um, From the reporting that we've seen over the last several months, Epstein is, he seems to be among the most hardened kind of... um, I don't know how to describe this other than maybe obstructionists. And I don't mean that only in the criminal way, but he seems to be the guy inside the Trump camp that advises Trump in the most aggressively um, kind of confrontational way. He's the one that doesn't want, you know, deny, 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 don't hand anything back to DOJ. 
Um, you know, don't cooperate with prosecutors on the recovery of these items. Uh, so he's kind of out there on the fringe. I could see him, you know, if that's his kind of role to be uh, Trump's gadfly of, uh, of you know, trying to get him to buck up and, uh, and stick with his instincts of fight, 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 um, it might all this parade of other Trump lawyers getting subpoenas probably causing him a few nights of lost sleep. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and then we find, we get to the, the, the three big daddy subpoenas this week. Um, first of all, there was an additional subpoena for Trump we didn't know about. Apparently he had a folder that was labeled classified evening briefing. And uh, Trump, some somebody from Trump world went on television and said that he, uh, that folder was being used to cover a blue light on the telephone in his bedroom. Okay. Uh, but that uh, apparently that and uh, a bunch of Trump schedules, some of which were also marked classified, were found by those two private investigators that, um, you, you know, have recently been questioned by the grand jury, by Jack Smith's grand jury. And uh, also some of those schedules, actually uh, that whole stack of schedules was scanned into a laptop of an aide for of Donald Trump. She you know, she works for the PAC, the Save America PAC, but I I don't think that her uploading of the schedules had anything to do with her work at the Save America PAC. Um it's just young aide and she was just uploading everything and says, "Oh, I didn't notice the the classified markings." I'm not sure that you know, well, first of all, they asked for the laptop and said, "If you don't give it to us, we're going to subpoena you." And then they subpoenaed that folder that said classified evening briefing and and it was returned to them in i think december and then they went for the laptop they had to go pick well actually trump wouldn't let him come and pick up the laptop uh it was <laughs> it was delivered to the department of justice so interesting uh but really quickly talk about uh, because this is your wheelhouse uploading classified stuff to a laptop even if it's accidental um there's going to have to be a risk assessment done on that no question. So, I mean, obviously, classified material is processed on computing systems, and which sometimes includes laptops all the time. But those are laptops that are specially set up and, and cleared, essentially, for whatever level of classified you're working with. So you might have a laptop that's cleared up to secret. You might have one that's cleared to top secret. They have all sorts of security precautions and software and things built uh, into them. One of the many things that those security uh, programs do is they keep a detailed record of every document that crosses that machine to understand if things go missing or if the machine is misused or misplaced or what have you, investigators can look inside and, and get a very good understanding of every place that every document has been saved on the machine and whether or not those documents ever left, whether they were attached to emails or exported onto thumb drives or what have you. So there's a, a really good audit trail on those, on those machines um, to kind of break that stuff down. Now, in this case, we don't know if this was, we, I, I think it's probably fair to assume this was not a laptop that was officially cleared for classified, but nevertheless, the investigators are going to gra grab that thing as they would with any spill or or alleged spill of classified material, and they're going to break it down to its component parts and understand exactly what was in there, where it went, who communicated it to who, um, and that could, of course, cause more problems for people down the road. 
Yeah, good. Now, my feeling here, since I think there was some reporting saying that these were presidential movements and schedules, which are classified until the movement happens and then they are no longer uh, classified. Uh, I, I don't know that and, and if it was inadvertent uh, and, you know, he was really just wanting to get his schedules uploaded to a, a laptop. I don't think that they'll find anything criminal, like criminally, like I don't I just don't feel like there's a lot of intent here, much like the couple of documents they found in that storage facility that have been in there and taped up since since they got there. Yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine, especially if this is in the hands of kind of a low-level staffer who was given a task to, you know, digitize documents in a box and just went through all that, put it all, you know, follow, kind of following orders, no, no obvious intent to possess or destroy or remove classified documents. So, and, you know, as we've said many times on, on this topic, most of the spills that the FBI is notified about over the course of a year resolve in this way. You do an investigation, you cover the material first and foremost, you do a damage assessment to figure out where it was and who might have been exposed to it. And then you look at whether or not somebody needs to be held accountable. And in most cases, if it's a mistake, there's absolutely no indication of you know bad intent, no case is brought. People could be disciplined at work, they might lose their clearance, they could lose their job over it, but uh, it's rare that people actually go to jail. Yeah, agreed. All right, we're going to take a quick break before we talk about the Meadows subpoena. Uh, and when we get back, we're going to we're going to discuss that because there's a couple of key pieces that that you know we should talk about um, with regard to Meadows and and his disposition in this entire investigation, both the January sixth investigation and the documents investigation. And then we're also going to talk about Pence and his battle, his legal battle to uh, defy the subpoena from the special counsel. Uh, we'll we'll do that as soon as we get back from this break. Stick around. Okay, we are back, and we're going to close up our uh, Mondo subpoena conversation this week by looking at one of the biggest, and that is the subpoena apparently received by Mark Meadows. You will remember Mark Meadows, AG, is somebody we've talked about several times. He was pretty much there for everything. He's uh, chief of staff toward the end of the administration. He's there for all of the meetings with the uh, crowds of really interesting folks who came into the White House at that time, the Jeffrey Clarks of the world, the Sidney Powells, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Lindell, the whole kind of uh, cast of characters. Uh, was, of course, there in the building with the president on January 6th and uh, presumably has a lot to offer on his observations from that day as well. So he has now been subpoenaed to appear in front of the grand jury in D.C. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, first of all, a couple of things. I just want to dispel a myth. A lot of people thought he was subpoenaed after Pence was, but this subpoena apparently went out in January. And his lawyer, who is Terwilliger of the third, um, is uh, a, a really known conservative lawyer. He's a good lawyer, right? He got him somehow got him off the hook for um, contempt of Congress when he defied the That's subpoena right. for the January 6th committee. Yep. By handing over some documents or negotiating or or something that that made the DOJ decide not to prosecute, a um, couple of questions that we don't know the answer to. Uh, um, my first question is: It says, according to the reporting uh, from people who've seen the subpoena, or maybe they haven't. I don't even know that they're reporting that they've seen the subpoena as much as someone's told them about it. But that this is with uh, regard to the January sixth attempt to overthrow the election. Right. And I 
I would want to subpoena him for January 6th and the documents, Mar-a-Lago documents case. Because, as you know, as we know, Donald tried to sign a declassification memo on January 19th before he left office. And Meadows was like, no, um, DOJ is not cool. FBI is not cool. Privacy Act stuff. So no. And then Meadows got a bunch of those papers, brush of papers back, sent them back to the Department of Justice. He's going to have a lot of knowledge about what was on Trump's mind and Trump's intent when he walked out of the White House with certain documents. Um, so I want to know about that. I also want to know if there was an advice of rights. And we could talk about what that is. You, you're familiar with that. Whether he's a subject or a witness or a target of an investigation. Generally, you don't subpoena a target uh, of an investigation, but sometimes you do. Um, yeah, we, know, we know Bob Mueller didn't subpoena, but had written questions for, for Donald Trump to answer. So there might be, you could, I suppose, be a target and still have to have some questions answered in front of a, a federal grand jury. Um, and so, you know, those are just a couple of the questions that I, you know, that I'm wondering about here. That and, you know, what does this say about potential cooperation? Because we've all been like, is he quietly cooperating this whole time? I don't know. He seems like he has a good lawyer. Doesn't feel like the cooperating type. So yeah. Everything's kind of still up in the air without this additional information. It really is. And it's more complicated by the fact that, um, well, we know we know the kind of guy that Meadows is. And, and by saying that, I mean, his history across the arc of this, this story, this, this series of events has been kind of on again, off again, right? He initially not cooperative, appears to be aligned with Trump. Then he puts his memoir out, says a bunch of things that did not did not sit well with the former president. Um, then he goes, then he's back at Mar-a-Lago, back in the Trump camp. Then he turns over thousands of text messages and documents to the to the committee, which now we're back in the in the cooperation uh, lane. Then he refuses to come in and actually answer questions. So he's been on both sides of the cooperating, not cooperating dilemma uh, from the very beginning. It's, you know, when someone gets, uh, comes before the grand jury on a subpoena, you tend to reflexively think that this is a, someone who is not a cooperative witness. They just, um, you know, they're being forced in to answer questions. But that's not always the case, as we've talked about with some other folks. There are times when the government will take a cooperative witness and then hand them a subpoena and say, okay, now we're going to go over all these questions that we've asked you a hundred times already in front of the grand jury because they want to lock that person's testimony in, uh, in a way that it can't be changed or manipulated later. It's also possible sometimes witnesses, people who are cooperating, ask for a subpoena because being served makes them look like they're not cooperating, and that can be better for their friends and associates who don't who they don't want to know that does they're the actually cooperating. Does the DOJ ever do that on purpose to kind of give cut? Does the DOJ like we want to give cover to you um, so that you're Absolutely. not manipulated Absolutely. by Boris Epstein? <laughs> you know, like uh, like we're going to issue a subpoena. We know you're going to come in. We're going to issue a subpoena anyway. Don't tell anybody. And Meadows has been very good about not telling anybody shit. And uh, and so I you know, I could see the DOJ being like, we're going to issue this subpoena so that the Trump camp thinks that you're not being cooperative uh, and then they won't reach out and try to suborn your, you know, 
suborn perjury or yeah, that's absolutely you. possible. Sometimes it's as minimal as something like you ask for a particular record or something from a business or a tech company or something like that, and they'll say, "Yeah, we're happy to give it to you, but please give us a subpoena first, so then it looks like we were compelled." And when in fact they were inclined to give it to you anyway, which is fine. We'll, we we would typically, um, you know, give them the subpoena they requested. This is a little bit more tactical because what you're suggesting is like both sides agreed this is the best way to do it to maintain the appearance that this witness is not on the government's side. Um, but that is a, a reasonable and um, often used tactic to maintain that sort of appearance. It's done a lot in organized crime cases, right? You don't, if you have a witness, um, that witness could be in real trouble or their family could be threatened or or hurt if their former associates realize that they're now cooperating with the government. So you do all kinds of things like that to maintain the illusion of uh, conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then talk a little bit about um, advice of rights um, and, and, and subject versus target real quick. Because, you know, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is if you're a witness, your subpoena is a witness, you know. Uh, and I'm thinking maybe... Um, you know, they gave immunity to Kosh Patel, so there, witness. Yeah. Um, and then if you're a subject, I feel like you're it, the, the DOJ is like on the fence. Could go either way. Depends on uh, what, you know, what we find and how, I mean, it depends on a, a lot of things, right? A target means you're you're a target of the investigation. You'll get a target letter um, saying you, you're, you're being investigated. And, and right now we know Trump is the target of these uh, special counsel investigations. Um, as as was the Trump campaign during the Mueller investigation. Sure. Yeah, that's that was clear in the attorney general's designation of special counsels in both cases. So, yeah, typically, I mean, the basic rule for advising someone of their rights is it's done when uh, that person is in a situation where they are experiencing a custodial interrogation. So they have to reasonably believe they cannot leave where they are, i.e. they're in your custody, and you're asking them questions. Questions beyond just like, what's your name? Questions like, you know, substantive questions. Usually, you know, you don't, you, you don't advise people of their rights. Um, uh, in my experience, when they've been summoned in front of the grand jury, because you know, you're there, you can invoke the Fifth Amendment. You you get the subpoena in with enough time to go seek legal counsel if you wish to do so. That's entirely up to you. What the subpoena requires is that you show up at an appro- at the designated time and place and you're sworn in to answer questions. If you don't want to answer questions, you don't actually have to. You can assert your Fifth Amendment right and not provide answers. Um, so it's typically not a a part of the actual appearance um, in that moment, but it's certainly possible that the prosecutor might say, you know, you, you understand you have the right to remain silent or what have you. I gotcha. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll, I'm, I'm assuming learn more as, as the investigations roll on. Um, all right. Hey, uh, let's, let's talk about Pence, baby. <laughs> let's talk about the former VP. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Enough of that. Um, Pence wants to use a speech or debate clause as an excuse or a reason, excuse me, not to testify before uh, the grand jury. Now, he's claiming he, he, I've, I've heard him talk about this and he's saying it would set a bad precedent that a member of the legislature could be subpoenaed by the executive branch. It, it, it raises separation of powers issues. 
But none of that would matter if he would voluntarily testify. No precedent would be set for him voluntarily testifying before the grand jury. There would be no. no and, and we know, Andrew, he's been talking back and forth. They've been in negotiations since before Jack Smith was appointed, trying to get his testimony. The January 6th committee subpoenaed him. He said, executive privilege bars me from having to comply with your subpoena. And now he's trying to use the speech or debate clause, saying that he, as the president of the Senate, presiding over the January 6th electoral vote count, he is a member of the legislature and therefore protected by the speech or debate clause privilege. So what are your top line thoughts on this? Because I've heard a lot of different arguments and pushback. I've got a, a very novel argument I, I would personally make if I were the Department of Justice. Maybe you could call some of your friends and let them know. Uh, but uh, what do you think? Well, those are all really fascinating issues. And I think I think we all kind of shook our collective heads a little bit uh, when the news broke this week about the subpoena and the, and the position that um, the former vice president intends to kind of assert before the court. So let's back up just for a second and remind everyone that what we're talking about here is typically referred to as the speech and debate clause. It's in Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1 of Constitution, and it basically lines out kind of um, the responsibilities of senators and representatives. It says they receive compensation for their services to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury, blah, blah, blah. And it also says that they shall, in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses and in going to and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. So that last line, line or two, is the part of the speech and debate clause that essentially makes uh, senators and representatives immune from having to undergo questioning for any sort of legislative business that they engaged in in their respective houses. Um, it is often relied upon by members of the House and the Senate to push back on things like subpoenas or um, congressional inquiries, for that matter. So it's it's a uh, kind of, I don't want to say a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not that. But it is a, you can't stop me and talk to me and compel my testimony because what I was engaged in was legislative business uh, on behalf of, you know, in, in my role as a senator or representative. So kind of fascinating that Pence is now arguing that as the vice president, he is also the president of the Senate, right? And we are all familiar with this with respect like uh, Kamala Harris's role in casting the deciding vote in 50-50 Senate uh, uh, situations in the, in the, last, uh, the last Congress. Um, so in that role as president of the Senate, Pence is saying he is in, in effect a member of the Senate and he was there conducting the senatorial business of certifying the vote and therefore he cannot be questioned about any of that activity. As far as I know, uh, totally novel argument, not one that um, I mean, not one that anyone has made before, but let's be honest, there's not a whole heck of a lot of people who could possibly make that. You would have to be either a vice president of the United States or a former vice president to uh, have the standing to, to make that claim. 
Yeah. And I think that this would probably go in um, three different arguments. Like the or here's the order of operations I see happening uh, it, when the Department of Justice files its response to whatever Pence files. First of all, I think they're going to say that the, the, the question of are you a senator in this particular case? They're going to answer that question. I think they're going to argue you didn't get compensated for your time there that day as a senator. So, no, you got compensated as a vice president. Uh, they're going to say, um, was there debate? Sure. You know, when you debate on the different states. But was this a legislative procedure or was it legislative activity? I think they will argue that it was not. Um, and that would be the second tier there uh, after you shoot him down for saying you're not a senator. Um, that shoot the idea down, by the way. And then the third thing I, I wanted to bring up, because that those are the common arguments I'm hearing. I know Judge Ludig, who is a longtime friend of, of the former vice president and a conservative judge. He testified before the January 6th committee. Um, you know, he said this just this isn't going to work for several reasons. But one argument I'm not hearing that I would like the DOJ to make if they even need to make it to get this far into the weeds Let's say they do say he was a, a senator that day or they, you know, they say that this was a legislative, uh, that, that it was more than ministerial and this was somehow a legislative act, what they were doing and, and not just a counting of the votes, a ceremonial thing. Um, I think that giving the former vice president the ability to claim speech or debate as a senator is a violation of the separation of powers of the Constitution. And, and here's why I think that, Andy. The check on that privilege, on the speech or debate privilege, is censure or expulsion by the Senate and I, you know, or the House, but we're talking about the Senate here. But the vice president, he can be impeached as vice president, but he can't be censured or expelled as the president of the Senate. So there's no check on the speech or debate. Those are the only checks on the speech or debate privilege. And without those checks, I think his assertion violates the separation of powers. And uh, that's just my two cents. I don't know that they'll necessarily have to get that far. I make weird novel arguments. Like when Durham was appointed, I was like, his whole investigation needs to be tossed out because he's not eligible to be special counsel because he was appointed from inside the government. But nobody listens to my novel arguments. <laughs> they they well, generally go with arguments that have been made before. <laughs> we love your novel arguments, so don't stop making them. I actually think that you're onto a pretty good one here. I think, you know, it is a little bit of kind of setting up a straw man because I think you don't even get to that. It's the guy it's like is the jurisdiction yeah, uh, Eileen the, Cannon argument. Like we don't even have to talk about why a special master right. is necessary. You didn't even have jurisdiction in the first place. And that's why it's, there's that order of operations. Exactly. It's he's not a senator. He was not <laughs> elected to the United States Senate. So, I mean, look, is the sergeant in arms who is actually works for the Senate, has a discreet role to 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 play there as a, as a part of the Senate infrastructure. Does he enjoy the speech and debate clause? No. I don't know. We could look at Gravel, right? Because th that had to do with Senate aides, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's, I mean, at least they're conducting legislative business on, on behalf of the senator or the member. I just, I just were. don't, I think it's a total stretch here. Um, I don't know. I just love it when, when this particular, particularly this Department of Justice says, OK, we don't even have to argue the other Richie factors, but we're gonna for completeness. Yeah. 
So yeah. here we go. So I would just love for them to say, look, look, let's just say, even if, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you don't have the check on the VP as a senator. It doesn't exist. And so therefore, that would be a separation of powers. I would just love to see the argument. So Department I'm of sure. Justice, if you're listening, please. Yeah. Argue. If this goes forward, I, I'm, you're not going to be disappointed because they're going to throw everything at the wall, right? You're going to see every argument in the alternative that anyone could possibly come up with. I think it's that that's the real problem here is that, you know, if this is the Pence has already said publicly, he's going to fight this to the Supreme Court if it if that's what it takes. So it's just delay. It's more delay. It's the it's the number one. It's the top five tactics of the folks who are not interested in having these investigations concluded in any sort of an effective way. Yeah. And this actually is an argument that has a shot at getting heard by the Supreme Court, whereas the executive privilege argument, we have seen time and time again, the Supreme Court, including Justice Clarence Thomas, be like, we aren't even going to take it up. We aren't even going to look at it. You don't have the executive privilege. It's not yours to make. And the former president doesn't have it here because this is an investigation of a crime. We can't get that information anywhere else. And that's another very big, important point, too, that a lot of legal experts are bringing up. There are things that only Pence can answer. And in that criminal investigation, that's just clearly going to outweigh any privilege um, that you would assert. We saw it happen with Lindsey Graham in the Fulton County District Attorney's investigation. He tried to assert that. And they said, "Okay, well, you... All right. We promise you don't have to answer questions about anything that you did that was legislative in nature. None of these questions look like that to me, though, because, you know, breach of the peace and treason, you can't and there's, you know, you just can't have that privilege for every single thing. The other thing you could do in this case when it comes to um, wanting information from Mike Pence, you could cordon off certain areas that get close to even an arguably legislative function. So in other words, okay, fine. We don't care about your speech and debate while you were sitting in your chair, reading the votes, certifying the votes. That's not, we're not going to ask you about any of that stuff. What we want to ask you about is when you were standing down in the loading dock, calling the White House, talking to Trump, talking to Meadows, whoever else he might've talked to, Um, And even conversations he had during the course of that day for the hours that he endured almost getting attacked and killed, um, that's really what they want. They're not looking for like uh, which state objected first and on what grounds and what did you think about that? So there are ways that they could cordon uh, the questioning to really not even go close to anything that could arguably be considered uh, covered by the clause. Yeah. And I think I feel the same way about the phone call that he had with him on the morning of January 6th. There's there's no way that trying to right. uh, stop the electoral count and interfere and obstruct an official proceeding can be veiled by any kind of speech or debate clause. And, and you know, in Gravel, too, we learned that that doesn't cover third party uh, testimony, you know, testimony about third parties, right. which is, in this case would be Donald Trump. All right. Uh, fascinating. I don't think he's going to win this. It could drag things out quite a bit, though. Um, yes. We'll see. We'll see how that. We'll see how that uh, ends up uh, happening, or what ends up happening with that. Um, I do worry that they may not, because of this delay, be able to get the testimony of Mike Pence, and I'd be interested to know how that impacts negatively impacts the investigation. And again, the great thing about a special counsel is we'll learn all about it in the report when it comes out. 
There you go. Like we did with the Mueller report. All right. We have one more big, giant story, what I think is the story of the week to talk about. We're going to do that right after a quick break. Stick around. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, Before the break, uh, I was talking about what I think is the story of the week. And I think this is huge. I think this is the nail in the coffin for the intent piece of the fraudulent elector scheme trying to overturn the 2020 election. Trump and the Trump campaign hired an outside independent research firm, a big firm, a known firm called the Berkeley Research Group, to look into at least a dozen different claims of voter fraud uh, and election fraud and report back to them. And that was done in December. And both Meadows and Trump were briefed in December about this, uh, about their findings. And their findings were, we looked at dead voters. We looked at immigrant voters. We looked at envelopes. We looked at your quote unquote suitcase video that you claim. We looked at every single thing. We found nothing that would indicate or o- enough to overturn the election. And also we found it on, on both sides. Honestly, if the, the very little that we did find, it was like even Stephen uh, on, bo- on both the Republican and Democratic side. And that report was never made public, obviously, because it would be devastating to their case. Um, I, <laughs> and such I pers- a disappointment to so many, so many people. <laughs> I personally think, Andy, here's what I think happened. I think that Trump didn't pay them because he didn't like the results. And they're the ones who went to the press <laughs> with the findings of the report. I mean, because- that is not a crazy suggestion. <laughs> I, I'm just, I just can't. Money. I just can't get over thinking of this report as like the ultimate Trump campaign buzzkill. Like, mm, oh, mm. no, what? What does the report say? No fraud. Yeah. Bummer. Now, here's something really interesting that I, I had remembered. You remember, you remember that ongoing January 6th legal battle uh, between the committee and Eastman trying to get at his Chapman emails, his Chapman University yes. server emails. And we found out uh, the cool thing is DOJ already had them all when they went through this whole public thing. Uh, but because of the public thing, we we learned that several uh, in, in three different rounds of jo- of Eastman's, John Eastman's emails were subject to the crime fraud exception and had to be handed over to the January That's 6th right. committee. Yep. In round two <laughs> of this uh, emails handed over, one of the emails from uh, John Eastman was sent out on uh, December 30th. So after Meadows and Trump received this briefing yep. saying... Uh, hey, look, uh, I don't think Trump should sign this. I'm paraphrasing. I don't think Donald Trump should sign this Georgia lawsuit because it lists specific numbers of dead voters and specific numbers of immigrant voters and specific numbers of ballots that are missing and harvested, whatever. And the president has since learned these numbers are inaccurate. It wouldn't be good for him to put his name on this lawsuit. And Andy... He signed that lawsuit anyway, attesting that those numbers were true and accurate. And I, I really think that this Berkeley research firm, these findings touch on so many things, touches on that. Yes. It, it, it could be what Judge Carter, when Judge Carter kept referring to, I have evidence that Donald Trump knew that he thought that these election fraud claims were false. And we were like, what evidence other than, you know, 800 million people told him and right. what's obvious to the rest of us. It might have been this Berkeley research firm stuff. Uh, this touches on the defrauding donors, which you had brought up a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago, saying it looks like Jack Smith is really honing in on the big steal, the big scheme, the big 
grift, uh, as Zoe Lofgren said, uh, which is, you know, raising money for the election defense fund that never existed, you know, getting all this money, sending out emails on election uh, fraud, lies, defrauding donors, wire That's fraud. Right. I mean, it's a pretty open and shut case. That is huge for that case. This is huge for that case. It's It really goes a long way. If it it's, you know, it's not the only evidence we have indicating that Trump knew or should have known that the claims of election fraud were baseless, but it is a very powerful one because he initiates the report. So presumably he's, you know, interested in its results. We know he was briefed on it with Meadows. So it's a it's kind of an inescapable um, evidentiary piece that points in the direction of you knew, or at least you had reason to know, right? He can always pick up some other, you know, maybe Johnny McEntee wrote him up a, a memo before lunch one day about here's how, how much fraud we have found, sir. And he can pick, hold that up and say, but I had this memo also, and it says there was fraud, so that's the one I believed. But the point is with this accumulation of evidence that shows that any reasonable person should have drawn the conclusion there was no fraud, um, it becomes less and less likely that a jury would believe, you know, uh, that he, I went with the one piece that said there was fraud and I ignored the 15 uh, people and pieces of evidence that said there wasn't any. Um, so yeah, and isn't I, there a jury? And there's, I, I think Joyce Vance told us that there's a jury instruction called the ostrich rule. Uh, which means that you you can't feign willful ignorance. Yeah, willful blindness. Some, willful blindness at some point, you know, and they instruct the jury on that. And I don't see him getting out of that, especially. I mean, maybe with Hirschman and Barr and, you know, Donahue and everybody telling him Ivanka. But, yeah. but this re these research firm findings really just are the nail in the coffin, I think. Yeah. You know, and and uh, this is, of course, not uh, evidence specifically relevant to Trump, but I thought it was remarkable, the reporting that came out uh, on Friday or maybe Thursday about the emails that have now, the internal Fox emails and text messages from Fox News that have now been disclosed in the litigation between Dominion Voting and Fox that show that even the hosts that were that were putting this stuff on the air, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and Tucker Carlson, Lou were texting Lou Dobbs, texting each other, commenting about how crazy this was and how there was absolutely, you know, they knew that it was false. They knew it was fraudulent, and yet they were putting this stuff out, along with Rupert Murdoch and some of his advisors. So um, and when you sew all of these things together, the reasonableness of one man who happens to be the president of the United States thinking the complete opposite of everyone else, it becomes less and less believable. And that's what will impact the jury in the long run. Yeah, I didn't even think of the Fox files. That's what I'm calling him, by the way, in response to the <laughs> Twitter files. And, and I hope that we have a bunch of Senate judiciary hearings on the Fox files. There you go. Yeah, it's... I didn't even think about because I've been reading that that 194 page uh, defamation suit with all of those texts in it. Apparently, uh, Sidney Powell was listening to someone who thought she was time traveling and was being told by the wind or something and has a unicorn head. I'm not quite sure. Uh, they were saying like this is absolute like bullshit, like they were swearing at each other. She's a crackpot. I'm not having her on her show. Same with Rudy. Uh, yeah. Just some of the really incredible 
admissions behind the scenes at Fox News. And I really hope that this takes them down. It can't be good. It really can't. I mean, defamation suits are hard, right? They're almost impossible to uphold against media entities. But this one, I mean, all the experts are saying that this, you know, Dominion has some incredibly powerful evidence. And this thing is on, um, I mean, it is moving forward like a freight train. Uh, I think it's set for, they're going to start picking a jury or something. I want to say in Mm -hmm. April, I saw. So yeah, we should should definitely uh, hear more about that one. Yeah, so that, that's big news this week. And and I, I just want to encourage everybody, if there's anybody in your life after hearing this news that is a Fox News watcher and says, man, I guess I was duped. Uh, and, uh, you know, make room for them. You know, make <laughs> make room for them. Don't don't be like, yeah, yeah, you were dumb. Get out of my face. You know, be be like, hey, uh, yeah, that sucks. I'm glad that you, you know, you've, you've, you're seeing the light. And um, if you have I any mean, questions, it's... I'm here for you. You know, we, I don't want to, I don't want to, Yell at people to change and then give them no room to do so. No, I mean, it's, it's uh, the, the tragedy of this whole thing is that the only people who actually believed these claims were the millions of people who were fed lies over and over again from whoever they were listening to and whatever channels they watch. But the people propagating them almost to a person, now we have evidence, knew all along it was, it was fraud. It was, um, it was created by some people to raise money for a campaign. It was created by one person to try to hold on to the job he didn't want to lose. It was propagated by other people at a network who were un- unhappy with the fact that they were losing ratings to competitors. Everyone had their reason. Most of them were motivated by money or power. And the folks who got victimized were, as always, you know, innocent Americans who sat back and, uh, and believed it. Very true. Well, thank you. What a heck of a show. Uh, sorry, we went over a little over an hour. There was too too much to talk yep. about this week. I don't. I feel like everyone's been subpoenaed now. So maybe the maybe it'll slow down a little bit next week. I don't <laughs> no know. No way. What. More rain. Bring the rain, baby. <laughs> make it rain. It's raining days <laughs> coming what my up. Drill instructor used to say, "We're gonna make it rain." <laughs> you get indoors, they turn the heat up, and you exercise until the condensation falls from the roof. That's what, nice. that's what make it rain was. Uh, Good so times. yeah, let's subpoenas though, please from from the sky. I would love to see it. Uh, All right. We will see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening to Jack. If you want to become a patron and get these episodes ad free, just go to patreon.com slash Mueller. She wrote, sign up at the $5 level. You'll get both this show and the daily beans ad free. And you'll be invited to the happy hours, VIP meet and greets. Um, You know, sometimes when we travel, we go out, we have a drink with some of our patrons. We tell you where we're going to be. You can come and uh, have a have a cocktail or a mocktail with us. All kinds of cool stuff. So again, that's patreon.com slash Mueller. She wrote, Thank you so much. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. And we'll see you next week. M-S-W-Media.